Welcome to Trevecca Community Church's Sermon Podcast Series. Each week we'll be streaming our sermon from within the sanctuary just for you. individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss the question with the apostles and the elders. So they were set on their way by the church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins, I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. 
Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letters. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings, since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds. We have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. By the way, that farewell is in the scripture, but farewell. <laughs> oh, thanks to the Reverend Dr. Nina Gunter. With a passage that long, we needed to call in a professional, folks. She did a great job. Thank you. Tell me a story. This passage in Acts chapter 15, the believers in the early church are faced with a dilemma that threatens to tear the church apart, and they find a way forward through testimony, story, and silence. If you've been with us in the series, we broke down basically what I think makes an anatomy of a good story. We've broken down the different elements that really build and create a great story. I'm going to walk through it one more time with you, just in case you haven't been a part of this sermon series. First, a good story begins with a premise. There is something, a reason behind the story, maybe an unanswered question. There's something that we need to understand more deeply. But every story builds on a premise. And then, of course, every story's got characters, right? In the story, we meet characters who are going to take a journey. This is the story arc. And these characters are the ones who will give shape to the way that the story plays out. Every good story's got to have characters. And then every story has a catalyst, something that sets the story into motion, uh, often an incident or change that moves the character or the characters into the story journey. Well, then after the catalyst, the characters are usually faced with a dilemma. There's usually a dilemma in a good story, a choice that must be made that somehow corresponds to the character's deepest desires, right? Are you with me? Begin with a premise, meet the characters, there's a catalyst, and then our characters are faced with a dilemma. Well, then after the dilemma, I think a good story 
needs resolution. There are some folks in Hollywood who disagree with me. And they love to have those dangling stories that leave so much unresolved. I think if I get to break down what makes a good story, a good story has some kind of resolution, even if it's not the resolution that I want it to be, where the catalyst incident comes to some kind of an ending point that brings alignment with the premise, the question that we were wrestling with from the very beginning, right? Some kind of resolution. But then in a good story, I think that we also see something revealed. There's something that's been revealed in the story that we did not understand at the beginning of the story that we can only know now after this journey's taken place, after this story arc has been somewhat completed, there's finally something understood that we didn't know at the premise, right? So for me, that's, that's the breakdown of what makes a good story. So I'm just going to take a moment to break down this story in Acts chapter 15 for us. It's a long passage uh, that was read for us just to kind of break down the elements of the story that we see here in Acts chapter 15. First, we begin with a premise. And the premise of this story is that most of the early Christians were Jewish, most of them are Jewish, and they expected that anyone who would follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, would also follow the law of Moses. This premise was more of an assumption. It just seemed to make sense that if you are going to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, you would come to Jesus through the law of Moses, which in this case included circumcision. That's a real high bar to clear, right? And so th this is the premise that said that you're going to follow the law of Moses in order to follow Jesus. Now, the characters that we meet in this story, we learn that there are some Pharisaical Jewish Christians, some Jewish Christians who are from the sect of the Pharisees, right? These folks who had studied the law very carefully, had a very particular way of interpreting the law of Moses. We also know that there's Paul who used to be a Pharisee himself, was, uh, was called Saul, and now has become this evangelist going all over the Greco-Roman world preaching the story of Jesus. There's also Barnabas, who is Saul's companion. They, they go around teaching, preaching, healing together. We, we know that Peter is there. Uh, Peter tells some stories as well. Uh, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, the rock on which Jesus will build the church, James is also a part of the story. We think this is probably the brother of Jesus, but we know that this James is a bedrock, authoritative figure in the church, the kind of person who, when he speaks, you listen. James doesn't say a lot in the book of Acts, but when he does, it's real important. So James is a significant character with a lot of sway. And then we know that there's also Gentile believers but at this point, the Gentile believers stay silent. It's all Jewish believers talking about Gentile believers. That's something that always kind of catches my attention when we're discussing an issue and we end up talking about a group of people, but they never have a chance to speak for themselves. And I think that this points out for us that this is still a really early point in the story, right? This joining together between Jews and Gentiles, we're not yet at the place where Gentiles hold significant positions of leadership and authority where they're able to have voice in a setting like the Council of Jerusalem. And so these are, are primarily the characters that we see in this story. Well, what's the catalyst? 
The catalyst is that a bunch of Gentiles convert to Christianity. They come to Jesus. They want to become followers of Jesus under the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And however, there are some of the, the Jewish Christians from the sect of the Pharisees that still insist that they be circumcised and follow the law. Now, new Christians are almost always a catalyst moment in the church, right? Welcoming new believers, this is almost always a catalyst moment, a moment of change. But new Christians often also bring, while they bring catalyst, while they bring energy and celebration, usually bring a dilemma to the church as well. And in this case, the dilemma is, will Jewish Christian leaders insist that Gentile Christians convert to Judaism? Will they insist that they follow the law of Moses in order to follow Jesus and to become a part of the church, a part of the body of Christ? Another question, another way to ask it that one Bible commentator asked, will they settle for the love of their own people or trust God for love that creates a new people? I want to ask that one more time. Will they settle for the love of their own people or trust God for love that creates a new people? I new people. Amen. <laughs> and Jeff, you are beautiful representation, a testimony of God making us one, a new people. The resolution then finally is that Paul and Barnabas are asked to tell stories Paul and Barnabas tell stories, and the scripture tells us that people listen in silence. They listen in complete silence to these stories, and the Holy Spirit changes their hearts, and the council decides that they will require only a basic discipline concerning food and sex, right? These are the things that they essentially settle on. And what's revealed in the passage? Well, so much is revealed in the passage. I, I can imagine that if we went around the room and asked what you see in the passage, what this passage helped you understand, it would be different throughout the room. But one thing that I thought was really important, if you notice that when they write the letters back to these new Gentile believers, they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and good to us. Isn't that a fascinating phrase? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and good to us. One of the things that that reveals for us is that the way forward is paved by the Holy Spirit and not by human ingenuity, right? That it was the Holy Spirit moving and guiding them, but they had to discern the Holy Spirit together. And so they finally say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and good to us that we would not put a stumbling block in your way, but we would just require these things. Man, that's such a fascinating statement. It is not, thus saith the Lord. It's not another tablet coming down off the mountain. It's a statement of humility in many ways, a statement that's not taking themselves too seriously, although now all of our Bibles say the Council of Jerusalem as the header for this passage. Paul and Barnabas didn't know that they had gone to the Council of Jerusalem. They thought they had just been there, invited there to help the church make a really difficult decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and good to us. My freshman year of high school, I entered into a high school that had a theater program. 
And if you wanted to be a part of the theater program, one of the things that you were invited to join was a society called the Thespian Society. I'm pronouncing that real carefully for you. T-H-E-S-P-I-A-N. The Thespian Society. And it was a group of people that was all about the love of theater. That's really what this society was about. It was about the love of theater. And if you were going to be a part of that, it was actually an academic honor society. If you graduated, you got to wear uh, ropes around your, your robes. When you graduated, you could put it on your, your college uh, applications. It was kind of an esteemed thing to be a part of. We participated in competitions every year and Shakespeare festivals. We learned about great uh, theater stage playwriters throughout the centuries. But in order to be initiated into the Thespian Society as a freshman, you had to go through a process. Some people might call it hazing, right? Where the older people in the group got to kind of make the rules about who was going to get in and who wasn't going to get in. And there was a process that you had to go through. We all got a big brother or big sister, all right, so I had a big sister assigned to me. Her name was Candace, and the guys had a big brother assigned to them. And that big brother or big sister basically became your master for the week. And all week long, if you wanted to get into the thespian society, you had to obey the commands of your big brother or your big sister, whatever they told you to do. And at the beginning of the week, that began with us all making t-shirts that we would wear all week long. They found the ugliest mustard yellow that the world has ever seen and got out all the worst, most atrocious puffy paints, wrote all kinds of bizarre things all over these mustard yellow t-shirts and we had to wear those t-shirts all week long. At lunchtime, we all had to sit together on something called the quad, which was where everybody kind of hung out at lunchtime. But we had to sit with all the theater kids at lunchtime and we had to do whatever our big brother or sister told us to do. And, you know, for some, it was real easy stuff like, hey, go get me a soda. And for others, it was things like, all right, everyone run out into the quad and pretend like you were being attacked by a swarm of bees. Okay. These were the things that you had to do. Luckily, my big sister was gracious and thought that that was all really silly and didn't have me do too many embarrassing things, a few, but some of the big brothers and sisters were really awful. Like they told their little brother and little sister that all week long, anytime someone said the word green, you had to rib it like a frog. I mean, just anytime someone said the word yellow, you had to hoot like a canary. I mean, just ridiculous stuff, right? That really doesn't have anything to do with the love of theater. But this was the way that you were initiated into the story of theater. This is the way you became a theater kid on campus. You had to know what your place was going to be on campus. And apparently that meant you would never date anyone other than other theater kids. <laughs> because after being exposed to that kind of ridicule all week long, your options were really limited. This was how you were initiated into the story, that you became a theater kid at Glendora High School. This was the initiation process. It was a lot of silliness, but these upperclassmen, they required it because that was what was required of them. 
It was a way to make sure that people were willing to take on all the weirdness and peculiarity of being a theater kid. It taught them how to play this role on campus. Well, after I graduated high school, I kept in touch with a lot of my theater friends for a little while, kind of through college and, and out of college. And, and I remember catching up with them at one point, some of the kids who had stayed in town and they would still go to the shows that the high school would put on. I, I remember talking with one of them and they said, you are not going to believe what happened. They said that the Big Brother, Big Sister program was hazing and we're not allowed to do it anymore. And they were really angry about it, right? Like, can you believe it? They don't have to do anything. They just have to fill out an application. Like, they were so ticked off about this. They don't have to bark like a dog. <laughs> they don't have to run around like they're being chased by bees. Can you believe it? They get off so easy. And so we talked together for a while and we all griped and complained. Oh, I can't believe it. They get off so easy. They don't even know kids these days. And in our stories, it was a lot of telling stories about the way that we did it and the way that we were initiated into this group of theater people. But truly, even though we griped and complained and told really ridiculous stories, deep down we knew that what we had gone through was not really the only way to be initiated into the story of theater. We knew that. In fact, really, we probably even knew that the way we had done it was not even the best way to be initiated into a love of theater. In fact, it might have even been making what we were doing more a part of, well, being in love with being a part of the society and not so much about a love of theater. More a love of being in this group of theater kids than loving the art and craft of theater itself. But nobody wants to be in that very last class that had to get initiated, right? That had to wear the ugly yellow t-shirts and run around campus screaming like bees were. Nobody wants to be in that last class. And then you get to be a sophomore and the incoming freshman and you don't get to be a big brother or big sister, right? Can you imagine being in the very last discipleship class of Gentile Jewish men that had to get circumcised? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's in scripture, I'm not, and I'm not gonna explain it for you, I promise, we'll be discreet. But I'm just saying, that's a pretty high bar to clear. I'm also not suggesting that following the law of Moses was a hazing ritual. I, I do recognize that my story about entering the high school theater department is silliness, right? That is silliness. I realize that. And they are categorically different things. This is not just hazing Gentile Christians, but I do believe that there was a deep concern for introducing them into this story of faithfulness, into the story of life in Christ so that they could live out their salvation to the fullest. And I really believe that these Pharisaical Jewish Christians, they cared about these Gentile Christians. They wanted them to get everything out of salvation. They didn't want their, their salvation to be shortchanged, right? Like I really believe that this came out of a place of deep love and care 
for these Gentile Christians, wanting them to enter fully into the story of salvation. But these early Christians rightly understood that our bodies are not exempt from salvation. Salvation was not just a part of our soul or our spirit, it was for all of life. And so much of the Jewish law had to do with people's bodies, what they ate, when they worked, how they cleaned and washed themselves. Uh, There were stipulations around sex and how they cared for the bodies of orphans and widows and foreigners and the poor. Bodies mattered in the law. The way that we use our bodies and, and whether these bodies are glorifying God or not, those things matter deeply and that's why they're a part of the law. And so now in the broken body of Jesus, these Gentile Christians who had not followed the law of Moses, there's a way that's been made for them to enter into the story of God's salvation, to become a part of the body of Christ and thereby become children of God, even though they weren't children of Abraham. Like a way has been made for them. And this is incredible news. But now that they're going to be a part of this body, the body of Christ, well, there needs to be some rules about what goes on in the body. If we're going to share in the body of Christ together, then what you all do with your individual bodies matters, right? We were in a long car ride this last week. The four Gaineses, we drove all the way up to Michigan and back. I think it was a grand total of something like 19 hours in the car. It was a long time. There were four bodies in that car. And what bodies do when you're sharing a car matters. And so there were rules about how many times we would listen to the Elf soundtrack, how many episodes of Star Trek would be viewed on the portable DVD player. There were rules about these things. Because we were sharing this space together, right? How much more so for the body of Christ Baptism is the initiation into the body of Christ. But the question is, would these Gentile believers need to be circumcised before they could be baptized, enter into Christ's body? New Christians always bring a dilemma to the church. This passage is called the Council of Jerusalem. And the leaders of the early church, they gathered to help the church find a way forward. To help the church find a way forward through this dilemma. And you know what they did in their gathering at the Council of Jerusalem? They told stories. Scripture tells us that they told stories of what had happened when these Gentile believers heard the good news of the gospel and and began to follow Jesus and receive the power of the Holy Spirit when they were healed and renewed. They began telling stories. First Peter, or he's called Simeon at one point, he tells his stories. And you know that he's got quite a story to tell after the time he spent at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. If you're not familiar with the story this afternoon, go home and read Acts chapter 10. Peter's got some stories to tell. 
And then there's Paul and Barnabas, and they've just preached to these folks. A chapter earlier in the city of Lystra, they've just preached to these folks, and they healed a man. And after they healed a man in this Gentile territory with folks who don't know anything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do you know what the people started calling Paul and Barnabas? They started calling them Zeus and Hermes. Because they saw this power, and this is the only the kind of power that they'd ever heard about with the Greek gods. And so they think Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, and they start worshiping them like they worship Greek gods. And Paul and Barnabas have to say, no, 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 <laughs> wait a minute. I know that we've come with power, but this power comes from the one true God who's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And some of the Gentile believers, they accept this and they give their lives to Jesus and they become a part of the body of Christ. Well, these are the stories that Paul and Barnabas are telling. They're telling these stories and the believers are amazed and they're celebrating. This is good news, but these are new believers and it's a dilemma, right? And so they're telling these incredible stories these apostles who have been out in the world witnessing to people who are far from the gospel and far from the story of salvation that came through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But they're witnessing and they're seeing lives changed and they're working in the power of God. And as they told these stories, scripture tells us that the council listened in silence. You know, that's a word that didn't have to be added we probably could have assumed that they were respectful, that while Paul and Barnabas and Peter were telling these stories, that they probably spoke to a quiet room. We could have assumed that, but it tells us that they listened in silence. I think the word silence was added with intention, not just assuming that the room was somewhat quiet. I think it means a lot more than giving people the floor. I think it means that they were really listening, that they were captivated by these stories. I think it probably also means that they didn't have a yeah, but already in the back of their throat, getting ready to reply. I think it means that they didn't have their own counter stories prepared. I think it means that they weren't scribbling out their rebuttals on parchment for as soon as they got the floor. They were listening in silence and letting these stories work in their hearts and their minds. Stories and silence. And the Holy Spirit was at work in their silence. One Bible commentator, Dr. Jennings, says that the way forward was found in testimony, truth embodied in flesh. I love that. I grew up in a church, I don't know about you, I grew up in a church that did a lot of testimony telling. It was a big part of our faith where there were whole services set aside with open microphones just to let people come and tell testimonies. And I'll be honest, I'm the kind of personality now then as a grown-up that gets real nervous about that. <laughs> real nervous about an open mic for people to just come and tell stories. But it was a really formative part of my faith hearing the stories of the way God worked in other people's lives, hearing the stories of the way the Spirit had been transforming them, what they were in the, as the old self and who they are as this new self in Christ Jesus, those stories made an impact on me. 
I do think that the Holy Spirit is pleased to work in both our stories and in our silences. You know, uh, when we were preaching in this series a couple weeks ago, there was someone who came up to me after church and said, you know, this Tell Me a Story series got me a little suspicious because back home, whenever someone says, oh, she's telling stories, it means, can you guess what she said it meant? You're telling lies. Like, if you're telling stories, it means you're telling a lie or that you're stretching the truth further than really is truthful, right? Like that's kind of what it means for some people to be telling stories. I thought that was interesting, uh, to that, that idea that telling stories means that we're extending the truth. When we hear that Peter and Paul and Barnabas are telling stories, they are not spinning tales, right? That they're not telling those kinds of stories. They are giving testimony. They're bearing witness to the work of God in their lives and in their ministry. And James can see that. It seems like James has eyes to see that. And he hears these stories. And finally, James tells them in verse 15, he says, this agrees with the word of the prophet. And then he goes on to quote from the book of Amos, right? You see, we need to tell stories that agree with the word of God revealed in Scripture so that we are not just people telling tales, right? We need to tell stories that agree with the word of God revealed in scripture and to be sure that as we are listening to stories, that we are listening to stories and being compelled by stories that also agree with the word of God revealed in scripture. This is so important. And I know I can't unpack all of the complexity of this this morning, but there are a lot of people these days spinning tales. We are living in a day and age when it has become extremely difficult to know how to tell the difference between a news source, an opinion piece, and someone who's just telling tales. And, and, and we are inundated with stories. Every time we open that glowing little device we keep in our pocket, right? In fact, now then, sometimes I even get these little notifications on my phone that tells me when there's a new story out there that I need to pay attention to. There's so many stories that are available on media and in movies, on TV shows, social media content, TikTok reels. There's so many different media to be able to access so many different stories. So many stories out there. How are we supposed to know the stories that are really revealing the truth of God as we see it in Scripture? One of the things that I'm seeing revealed in Acts chapter 15. We won't be able to distinguish between the story of God revealed in Scripture and someone who is just telling tales without learning to silence our hearts. To really silence all of the voices that are pulling for our attention. We won't be able to tell between the voice of the Holy Spirit or the voice of that person we really want to please and impress. We won't be able to tell the difference between the story of salvation as revealed in Scripture and this story that someone is just trying to win us over with. We won't be able to tell that really important distinction that we need to be able to make when our hearts are so noisy. When we can't silence our heart and listen for the Holy Spirit's voice in these stories. See, these Jewish Christians had good reason to bring a rebuttal to those stories. 
really good reason to bring a rebuttal. If anybody deserved to have a yeah, but after Paul and Barnabas told their stories, it would have been these Pharisee Jewish Christians. They had good reason. Circumcision was not just a hazing ritual. It was a part of the story of God's salvation. In fact, I think many people would say the key marker of a people who have been set apart to God is holy. And yet they were able in the power of the Spirit to sit and listen to these stories in silence without a yeah, but in the back of their throat. I'm going to confess, I have a really hard time doing that. When I am talking with somebody with whom I disagree or who has a really different experience, I always have another story ready. I mean, it is real easy for me to just immediately be ready to counter with my whatever, for my noisy, busy heart. This is hard for me. In fact, it's been a practice over years and years of learning to sit in silence. Or often I will read a passage of scripture and then just sit in silence for several minutes. Even set a timer on my phone so that I know when like a certain amount of time has passed when I can finally then begin my process of study or prayer or whatever, to just sit in silence with no explanation, no yeah, but, no rebuttal. This is hard for me. Is it hard for you? Can you listen to somebody else's story without a yeah, but in the back of your throat? Without blasting back your opinion or even just kind of quietly in your head marking down all the reasons that they're wrong? This is not just, hear me out. The reason this is so important is we are drawn, bridging and binding communities, as we are drawn to people who are different than us, as we have conversations across generations, across social divides, this is so important, but it is not just so that we can become a really diverse social club. Do you hear that? That is not the point. If that's what you're interested in, join the YMCA, they're great. That's not who we are. We're the church, we're the people of Jesus Christ. Becoming a really diverse social club is not the goal. The goal is participation in the kingdom of God. The goal is laying claim to the promise of resurrection that is ours because of the empty tomb. The goal is sharing life with the Father and Son and Holy Spirit from now to all eternity. The goal is the new creation of the people of God redeemed by the blood of Jesus and bearing witness to the Son. That's the goal. And we won't get there if we are holding on to a love of being the church rather than reaching for a love of Jesus Christ that makes us a new people. Makes us a new people joined with other people who once weren't a people who didn't know the name of Jesus, but now have come to Jesus because of the witness that they've seen in a body of believers like us. We've named that one of our missional practices is bridging and binding communities, building bridges into new communities and spaces and being bound with other people in holy love. And we've been seeing that in some really incredible ways, seeing the fruit of that missional practice 
In fact, just a few weeks ago, we got to participate in TCC's Got Talent. And some of you have got some really cool hidden talents that we did not know about. But on that night, if TCC's Got Talent, or beforehand, I should say, the Covenant class had been asked to provide dinner for the night. And so Jan Harvey, who doesn't know that I'm even going to tell this story, I should have asked your permission first. I, I should have. But, but one of the, she came to the teenagers in the church and said, hey, what would you like for dinner at TCC's? We're going to provide dinner. What would you like? Bridging and binding community. Reaching out to another generation. Asking our youth group members, what would you like to have for dinner for this fun night of TCC's Got Talent? And do you know what those young kids said? We want something fancy. <laughs> Make it nice, a real nice cut of meat and some mashed potatoes and fancy tablecloths. Make it fancy. And the covenant class said, okay. Now, it wasn't, you know, roast beef. It was chicken, and it was real good chicken. But they listened to these younger voices. They listened to what they wanted and that night, as you walked in, it was set with really lovely tablecloths and flower arrangements, and we ate a great dinner, and we celebrated the gifts that God has given to this church. And not just the gifts that we hear on Sunday morning, you know, folks like Pastor Jordan who hits a high note, and I feel like I'm going to pass up, and I'm, I'm going to pass out, and I'm not going to wake up till Jesus has come back as Lord, right? Like, he has got some kind of gifts that are otherworldly. But, I mean, we got to celebrate the gifts of kids that know how to make salsa and know how to break dance. And people who have memorized all kinds of fun, silly things. And it was the celebration of the people of God who have become the body of Christ. And it was incredible. And I walked away from that night I, I, I came back and told Tim, like, I just, I love this church. That was my first impulse, was just to say, I love this church so much. I love that we had this night where we celebrated the gifts of this church, and there were people who got to be up on the stage, applauded for, who drove in from the suburbs, walked over from the towers, or rode over on the vans. Like, it doesn't matter how you get there, you're all part of the church, Right? And it was this incredible night where the bridging and binding community that we have been doing for years was suddenly celebrated in this incredible way. My first impulse was to say, I love this church, and I do. But do you know what my heart was really saying? I love seeing Jesus in this church. I am falling more in love with Jesus because of the witness of the people of God. And I pray that our neighbors will come to fall in love with Jesus because of the witness of the people of God here in this place. Trebekah Community Church, you're doing it. I'm seeing it. You are listening. You are listening to the Holy Spirit. You're listening to the stories of others. And you have said... And you are continuing to say, we will not settle for a love of our own people, which is really hard because you're great people. I mean, you're awesome. I don't just love you, I like you. It would be so easy to just say, we good. I like this group of people. But you have said, when we've declared our missional practice is gonna be bridging and binding community, you have said, we're not gonna settle for a love of our own people. We will follow after Jesus and a love that makes a new people. 
and you're doing it. I am seeing it, and thanks be to God, it is making a difference in lives. People are being transformed to become more and more like Jesus Christ, and I am one of those people. Thank you. We're going to come to a time of prayer, and if you'd like to find a place at an altar to ask God to give you that kind of holy love, or even just a space where you can kneel and quiet your busy heart, where you can come before the Lord in prayer and find a place to have a quiet heart and to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. These altars are open. If you'd like a pastor to pray with you, why don't you go find your way to one of the far altars closest to the stained glass windows and a pastor will just know that that means you want someone to pray for you because maybe you've got an illness in your family or, or you've got some other pressing issues that are coming up and you would just like prayer today. It doesn't have to be for any particular thing. If you'd like to find your way to one of those far altars, a pastor will pray with you. But if you would just like a place where you can pray on your own and quiet your heart before the Lord, these center altars are a really good place to do that, to come and to bring your quiet heart before the Lord and trust that the Holy Spirit will speak to you. So if you'd like to come and find a place of prayer, now is the time as we seek the Lord. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join us on campus next week, we have discipleship classes beginning at 9 a.m. followed by service at 10.30. That service will be streamed to Facebook Live. We hope to see you there.